song about a man called Goth and a little boy wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals. Hello, so and welcome to episode why. 21 of Pod on the Hill. My name is Stephen Donnelly, and this is Labor's weekly podcast where we discuss the political issues, events, people, and campaign activities of the day. And don't forget that Pod on the Hill is now available on Stitcher as well as iTunes and SoundCloud and any of your favorite podcasts app. Podcasts app. Uh, if you have any questions for our guests, remember you can email them to podcast at vic.alp.org.au. My guest on today's episode is Anna Greenberg from the US-based research firm Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research. Anna has over 15 years of polling experience in political, nonprofit, and academic sectors, including successful campaigns for New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and former Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Anna heads up the uh, GQR Digital and is a leader in the field of data analytics and micro-targeting and the impact of social media in campaigns. She's a regular political commentator for the New York Times, the Washington Post and Politico, and now she can finally add the Labor Party's pod on the hill to that <laughs> illustrious list. I put it right on my bio. <laughs> of news outlets. I expect to see it there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna, welcome to Melbourne and welcome to Pod on the Hill. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, look, you have a very impressive uh, resume there that I've just partly read out. I had to edit out heaps of it because it's so much more impressive. And you've obviously studied uh, your undergrad at Cornell mm-hmm. uh, and your postgrad studies at the University of Chicago and lectured at Harvard's prestigious Kennedy School of Government. Um, but what's the origin story of, of your good mm-hmm. self? Where did you grow up and who were the people that shaped you and your values? Um, yeah, it's funny. I, people generally don't ask me those kinds of questions, so it's sort of fun to talk about. Um, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I grew up there because my dad was a professor at Yale, and he taught political science. Mm-hmm. And he grew up in Washington, D.C., and was very... Um, and, and his parents weren't particularly political, but he was very political, as was his brother. They both have PhDs in political science. And he um, was active in the civil rights movement. Um, he was one of the organizers of the March on Washington. I mean, you know, as a young person, obviously not like a, a leader of the march, but, you know, he was an organizer. He was on the mall for the March on Washington. Um, when he was in college, he was, um, you know, an activist on campus, ran for, you know, class, class president. Um, you know, he, he tells me this story. Um, when he went, he went to Miami University, Ohio, and at the time, um, men were not allowed in women's dorms. Um, and, 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 and women were not allowed in apartments of men who lived off campus. And so um, one day, some uh, police, you know, came to his door and knocked on the door and opened it. And he said, you know, pigs and like slammed the door because he thought they were coming to see if there were women in his apartment. But I guess his roommate's bike had been stolen. <laughs> so they were coming to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to find, help uh, identify the, the, the bike. Um, so anyway, my father um, ended up getting a PhD in political science at Harvard, and he, um, uh, his focus was um, the politics of poverty, and he did his field research in Birmingham, Alabama. And he went to Yale, um, and he taught political science there and be- became a comparative politics expert. I know this is a long story, but I'm getting to this. Um, and his area was South African politics. So when I grew up, um, I have vivid memories of him in his study with, um, you know, the Max Weber economy and society and the Marx Engel reader. He was a Marxist, you know, on the shelf and um, always talking about South Africa. And we had lived there for a year when I was a kid in 1972. Um, and uh, I have some memories of it. I mean, I was four and five years old. And my very first term paper I wrote in eighth grade was on apartheid. Um, and so, uh, when I was in college in the, the eighties, 
um, you know, there was really no political activity except for divestment on U.S. campuses. It was a very, it was the, it was the dull Reagan Bush years in the U.S. and there really wasn't, you know, campuses were pretty conservative um, and sort of demanding divestment was sort of the only kind of thing you could do as an activist on a, on a college campus. Um, and when I went to um, the London School of Economics for my junior year abroad, I got very involved with the Labor Club, um, became the secretary of the Labor Club, and the Labor Club was full of, you know, immigrants and working class people, and we marched in front of the South African embassy. So obviously my father had a very profound kind of influence uh, on me in sort of growing up in that, not just a political environment, but a very liberal environment and very focused on race. Um, so in 1980, um, he started a polling firm in our basement, and he started working for candidates. Um, and so when I was in high school and in college, it was my after-school job and summer job, so I photocopied questionnaires because at the time we did pen and paper surveys, not now we do automatic you know, data entry, um, but we had pen and paper surveys. We even had phones in our basement, and I was a caller. And I would say, hello, my name is Anna, and I'm calling to ask your opinion about some issues facing the state and local community. Um, and I would do surveys. And, you know, like I said, in college, I worked there after school uh, in the summers. Um, and I, but I always was intending to go to graduate school for political science. And, and when I graduated from high school, my yearbook, you know, it was a, your future plans. And it just said politics. And I remember the um, editor said, don't you want to say what you're going to do in politics? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to be involved in politics no matter what. And so I ended up getting a PhD in political science and teaching political science. And then um, after teaching for about four years, I quit um, my tenure track job at Harvard and joined my dad's firm where I've been ever since. And um, I'm a partner there now, and um, I run the company along with another partner, um, and he's still active in the firm, but day-to-day um, -day I run the company along with another, another partner. And the funny thing is, uh, yesterday my nine-year-old daughter asked me, um, you, know, you know, Mommy, did you, did you know what you wanted to do when you were nine years old? And because she's a little concerned that she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life yet. Um, and I said, no, I don't think I knew when I was nine. I said, but by about 13, and I always date it to writing that, term paper on apartheid in eighth grade. So by about 13, I pretty much knew that I was going to be, you know, involved in politics. And I remember, you know, Reagan beating Carter and being in front of the television and my dad saying, come, come, come away from the, the TV. And I would say, but if I keep watching, maybe Carter will win, <laughs> you know, and no, no, he's going to, he's going to lose. And the final thing I would add, by the way, is that my parents got divorced, and my dad got remarried when I was 10, and he married um, a woman named Rosa DeLauro who grew up in New Haven, and she's now the congresswoman. She represents Congress for New Haven, and she's been in Congress for 27 years, and she ran campaigns um, in New Haven. And so I also worked on campaigns in the summer, <laughs> um, including uh, her mother's campaign. Her mother was the longest-serving member of the New Haven Board of Aldermen. It's like the city council. Mm -hmm. And so when I was, you know, 10, 12 years old, I would be at the polls passing out flyers for Louisa DeLauro to be reelected to the Board of Aldermen. So, you know, from my dad, I have this kind of intellectual and ideological exposure to politics. And from my stepmother, um, the gritty, nitty-gritty, you know, the, you, you work on field. Um, it's kind of what you do in the field, right? and talking to voters and knocking on doors and driving them to the polls. And so she ran uh, Chris Dodd's Senate races, and so I worked on, you know, on those races with her. Um, and I worked on Joe Lieberman's Senate race, um, you know, always as like a field person, like a very junior kind of out there knocking doors and stuff. And so that's how, I, that's how this all happened. And I do often wonder about the path not traveled, <laughs> but I seemed from a very young age to be completely committed to this and nothing else. Did you uh, see a a fork in the road 
So you've mentioned that you've been, you know, as a young woman, you've been exposed to both the, you know, the research side of political campaigns, but also then the field side of political campaigns. Um, not that they're in, in, um, not that they're uh, siloed from each other; they're very much reliant on each other. But did you? Was there a point in time when you sort of said, "I think I'll go down the path of research," as opposed to public office or organising? Or so I mean, it's really hard to say. I knew that I wanted to get a PhD in political science, but I'm not sure why I knew I wanted to do that. Um, but once I got into academia, and I was you know six years in graduate school, four years of teaching, so you know my twenties, ten years. Um, I just didn't like it very much. And it turned out that polling was kind of the best combination of my academic interest in public opinion um, and also being able to do the real work of politics. So what happens now is I actually both are joined because I do research for campaigns and they use that information um, to develop message, but also for direct voter contact and targeting voters. And, you know, in the course of a campaign, um, we'll have conversations about, um, so how's the door knocking going? Or are we on the phones yet? And are we doing paid phones or volunteer phones, paid canvas, volunteer canvas? And so a lot of the kind of nitty gritty of campaign stuff, I still get to talk about and weigh in on while also having, you know, this research driven, um, you know, deriving strategy from research and having that be part of the conversation um, as well. So it's sort of the perfect marriage of, of my two, two interests in politics. The, let's turn to polling. The science of polling is, and research has come in for a bit of criticism following the 2015 uh, UK general election, um, then the Brexit referendum, and um, then the, um, the Trump election. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post in May this year that you said, and you said, recent elections show that polling isn't and never was broken. How so? Well, I think that, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I think you have to... Um, understand what polling is and it's not. Polling is a snapshot in time. A survey is a snapshot in time. It is not a prediction of the future. And second, all surveys have to rely on a set of assumptions about who you think is actually going to vote. Now, you don't have that problem in Australia because you have compulsory voting, so it's probably a lot easier (laughs) to do accurate survey work here. But in the U.S. and other places where voting is not compulsory, you have to determine who you're going to talk to. So if you don't know who is going to turn out to vote on election day, then your poll is going to be wrong. But it's not wrong because survey research methodology is wrong. It's wrong because you did not anticipate um, who was going to turn out on election day. And that's where most kind of polling error comes from. It's from not talking to the right people. So there's a new report that has been released by APOR, which is the American Association of Public Opinion Research. It's kind of the trade association for opinion research, both in you know, the private and academic sectors. Um, And they did a comprehensive report. um, And what they think the main driver of the polls being wrong, especially in the Midwestern part of the U.S., was that there's a correlation between taking a survey and education level so that the samples, uh, especially in the Midwest, were too educated. There was an enormous education gap in voting behavior. Uh, Trump won about 70% of white blue-collar men, for example. Clinton won a majority of white college-educated women. By the way, I say white because race is such a driver of vote choice um, that you have to look at white voters separately from African-American, Hispanic, and other minority groups. And so if you have too many college-educated people in your survey, then you're going to overstate Clinton's support or, more accurately, really understate 
Trump support. And actually, many of the polls did a pretty good job of capturing her share of the vote and underreported his share of the vote. So, of course, you can weight the data. You can, you know, that means after the survey is done, you can say, I don't have the right proportion, so I'm going to make blue collar voters five points higher than they are as a portion of the survey because I need to more accurately reflect the electorate. And the APOR report concludes that people were not waiting appropriately on, on education level. There's actually been almost no um, support for the theory of shy Trump voters, that Trump voters weren't taking surveys or they were. But there is some evidence that they, people who decided late in the campaign broke for Trump. So if you look at the Comey letter and when that happened, you saw a big drop for Clinton in the polls. That's not the only driver, I think, of the, the break for Trump, but I think it was, was one of them. I think there were a lot of Republicans who did not like Trump who were, you know, unenthusiastically supporting him or saying they were undecided in surveys, but ultimately, um, as is often the case in the U.S., performed as partisans and voted for Trump. And a lot of the post-election research suggests that people who decided late voted for Trump. So all this to say that any survey that was done two weeks out from the election probably understated Trump's support. Could it have more accurately measured? I'm not sure that's possible if people are deciding in the last few days you know, who to vote for. But again, these are all political explanations for why the polls are wrong. They aren't a critique of the methodology of how you do accurate data collection. And that's what I mean when I say polling is not broken. I think it's really easy to say, oh, the polls are wrong, so we know nothing as opposed to really digging in and understanding what actually happened with voters and the fact that I think, you know, that there was a, a lack of real listening to voters and a lack of real understanding of where voters were. And I think that was true not just in the presidential campaigns, because neither Trump nor Clinton knew that Trump was going to win, but also true of the media. Um, so, I, so, I, so, you know, I think that the, 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 the critique really should be um, are we listening to people in the right and appropriate ways and really hearing what they're saying? And that's a more appropriate critique than polls are broken. Mm. Outline, the, I mean, you've mentioned a couple in your response there, but I'm sure there are certainly more. Outline the challenges that pollsters face today when ensuring the accuracy of, of that data. Well, I mean, uh, there, there are a few challenges pollsters face. One is um, declining response rates, which means fewer and fewer people take surveys. That in of itself is not a problem. If the distribution of people who don't take surveys is random, then your survey sample is still representative because it's random, right? But when there starts to be systematic bias in who does not take surveys, that introduces non-response bias. So my example of uh, a correlation between education level and survey taking, meaning you're underrepresenting less educated people in your survey, that's, that's non-response bias. So you have to invest more resources in making sure that you're talking to people who don't take surveys. Um, we had a real challenge at one point when people started using cell phones. Um, and how do you include, and, you, and an increasing proportion of people in the U.S. are cell phone only or cell phone mostly users. Some people have landlines but mostly use their cell phone. I never answer my landline. I don't even know why I have one. But I just do because I'm old, right? And the idea of not having a landline in my home seems very strange. Um, but I mostly use my cell phone. So, but we have, over time, pollsters have found ways to incorporate cell phone interviewing into our surveys. So we now have a sample that's representative because we have both landline respondents and cell phone respondents. So this whole question of response rate um, always poses a challenge because you have to find a way to fix it. And the challenge for that is it always takes money. <laughs> so it requires bigger and bigger budgets 
for campaigns or advocacy groups or whoever it is who's commissioning research to be able to do accurate data collection. One of the things that has happened in the U.S., um, I think it's not as true in places like Australia, is there's a lot of media polling that's done very cheaply. And there's always a cost-quality trade-off. And so a lot of the media polling is not very accurate because they're sort of cutting corners to do it cheaply. Um, but every, all the forces are arrayed against that, right? Because as you have declining response rates, you have to actually spend more money. You can't spend less money. Yeah. But there are all these methods for cheap data collection that cut the corners. And so to go back to this whole question about polling being broken, a lot of this is about media polls. It's not about the private polling I do for my clients where you know, we have very rigorous methods for data collection and analysis. It's, it's mostly the media polling that is, is problematic. It's a good uh, point you raised there. I was talking to a, um, a polling research practitioner um, uh, earlier on today, um, and we were discussing some of the polls, the published polls that have been commissioned by media outlets, major newspapers um, in Australia. Um, and we're now starting to see uh, where a particular polling firm will be, uh, will be asked to uh, commission a poll on, uh, say, the state uh, the current state of politics in the state of Victoria, um, the favorabilities of the, the leader of the Labor Party, the Premier, and the favorabilities of the opposition leader and the two parties. Um, but the poll has not been commissioned by the polling company itself. It's been commissioned by a private, anonymous group, but then is then published in the media. And the concern that we're now starting to have is... Uh, what were the orthodoxies upon which that poll was conducted? Because the poll is an outlier. The poll that was produced not long ago in a particular conservative tabloid in Melbourne um, was a flip on the numbers of what, what most researchers suggested right now and how Labor's going. Now, that obviously, that freaks people out. Obviously, Labor supporters feel, oh, mm-hmm. we aren't doing as well as we thought we were doing. Maybe members of the caucus would be all of a sudden starting to go sure. to panic stations. I think that poll was commissioned mainly just to put the cats among the pigeons, really. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, I mean, is there, are there examples of that happening in the United States mm-hmm. to, I mean, effectively it's push polling we're talking about. Is that happening? How do you, as, uh, as a practitioner in research fight back against that? Sure. Because it kind of muddies the good work that you mm-hmm. do. So, um, it is the wild, wild west <laughs> in the U S there are no, there are individual states that have some regulations around um, how you conduct survey research. So, for example, some states require you to disclose who commissioned the survey when you actually conduct the survey. But for the most part, certainly at a national level, there are no rules around how you conduct research, how you release it, what you say about it. The APOR, which I mentioned earlier, and CASRO, which is another survey research trade association, have a set of ethical guidelines um, and, a, and, and a set of um, um, items they think that should be disclosed um, so that you so people can understand you know how the survey was done but there's no legal requirement that anybody conform to any of those transparency guidelines or those ethical guidelines so it really is the wild west there are um, and because there are cheaper and cheaper ways of data collection um, it allows lots of different people to do research really cheaply so there's a method called interactive voice recognition. I don't know if you have that here, but basically it's a push-button poll. It's a recorded interview. Push one if you're voting for labor. Push two if you're voting for conservatives. And it's really cheap to do because you're not hiring interviewers to conduct the surveys. Um, and so you can do a survey like that for two or $3,000, mm. which is nothing. Um, and, you know, some media outlets will report any poll that they see. Um, 
Now, within the media, um, the mainstream major organizations like the major broadcast networks, the major newspapers, you know, the AP, the wire services, they have, they will not um, report on surveys conducted by partisan organizations. So I did a survey where I tried to pitch um, the New York Times to report on it. They said, no, we don't, we don't report on, you know, anything that a partisan pollster mm. would do. Um, and they also would say, I'm not going to publish this unless I see the entire survey or if I know more about it. But there are, because of social media and because of online, you know, um, publications, there are, there are just, un- Twitter, there's an unlimited number of um, uh, avenues for releasing polling data, no matter how um, biased, no matter how bad it is. And so it's really difficult for your average person to be a discerning uh, consumer of polling data. I'd say that one thing that has helped is that there, I mean, this is for people who are really, you know, geeks. There are aggregator websites like 538.com, Talking Points Memo, Pollster.com that sort of aggregate the polls, disaggregate them, report on them. And if you're really someone who follows surveys, you can go to those sites and really figure out what are the good surveys, what are the bad surveys, but that's still pretty inside baseball, but that resource sort of does exist. I do want to mention one thing, though. Push polling is a very distinctive thing. Um, Bad polling is not necessarily push polling. Push polling is not a poll. It's when you call a bunch of people and say, if you knew candidate X beat his child, would you vote for him? And it's a way to put out bad information under the guise of doing essentially a survey. That is illegal. Now, it's very, in the U.S., in many places, it's very hard to enforce it because, you know, it's hard to know who did it and who paid for it, right? Because, and there's plenty of companies that will do that sort of thing. But that is actually an unethical and illegal practice, and most ethical pollsters won't do push polling. But we often get accused of push polling because we'll do a survey where we test out messages for the candidates and we test out negatives, and then someone hears the survey and they write it down and they blog about it and they say, someone's push polling. They're putting all this terrible information out there when really it's a campaign survey testing attacks on ourselves, testing attacks on our opponents, and it gets accused of being a push poll when it is not a push poll. Mm. We have an incredibly... Uh, fragmented media market and the role of social media obviously is playing a, uh, a more important part in our communication strategy from a campaign perspective. Um, what did you see as the best practice takeaways from the recent presidential campaign from either side? You mean in terms of campaign practices? Or yeah, like polling uh, or? I get this question when I go and speak to branch members that I'll go and talk about grassroots organising and how we need to go out there and talk to voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first question I always get is always about social media. What mm. are we doing in terms of social sure. media? Because um, I think it's the people see it as the the promised land. I think. Um, yeah. So, w- w- so I think I'm asking this question for our branch members here. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah, w- w- what are the new advancements right. we saw in the last campaign? Well, I mean, I think it's um, it's a little hard to say because um, a lot of what happens in social media is not public, which is to say there are lots of groups who do things through digital and social media that are not. Um, transparent about who they are and what they're doing. Um, I'll give you know there is transparency in television and there is not in social media. So, for example, if you place an advertising buy on TV, that is public information. You can go to that station or call that station and say, you know, who placed you know a buy, and you'll know Campaign X is spending X amount of dollars on an ad over a certain number of days. You don't know what the ad is till it airs, but you know what's going to happen. Mm. There's no such place you can call and say, who's placing a digital buy on Facebook? 
or you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or who's doing a promotion campaign on Twitter? There's no place you can go. These are private companies that are uh, whose main um, objective is to make money, right? And so they have an interest in people being able to come to these platforms and buy access to their audience. And there's no real transparency about it. So there's been a lot of discussion of Cambridge Analytica, which was the firm that did Trump's digital work in a sense that that was very effective in the way they targeted people on Facebook. Um, but there's not a lot of transparency about what they actually did. Um, and certainly, I think, post-election, Facebook will be changing some of its rules and practices to prevent some of the stuff that they did that was probably perfectly sort of permitted um, under their, their previous guidelines, but they realized were sort of being uh, used in a way that they didn't, they didn't like. Um, so it's really hard for me to say, like, what, first of all, it's not really my area of expertise. <laughs> but, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of discussion about kind of the black box of the Trump digital campaign and what did he do, because he did not, his campaign was really unconventional. They didn't spend very much money on TV at all. He got a lot of free TV. He got about, they, it's estimated about $2 billion of free advertising with all of the uh, attention cable paid to him. But he also apparently spent a lot of money on digital and social media, and nobody really knows what exactly they did. Mm. Um, we, I know it was, uh, my, my sense is they did a lot of linking of voter file information and um, personal data about people and social media habits and did a lot of very sophisticated targeting on, on Facebook. But that's sort of what I know from reading articles about what the Trump campaign did. Let's turn to the election um, last year. And there was a report in Slate in December 2016 that said, that Republican turnout for voters earning $50,000 or less uh, across the five Rust Belt states of Iowa, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Um, the Republican vote increased by 335,000 votes uh, between Romney in 2012 and Trump in 2016, which is a swing of about 10%. Um, conversely, the Democrats in the same income category uh, registered a decrease in support between Obama in 2012 and Hillary in 2016 to the tune of 1.17 million voters. Um, and the argument being that Trump didn't flip working-class voters in these states, that the Democrats um, fail, failed to mobilise their base. So seven months since that poll's happened and all of this post-election analysis, does that analysis still hold up? Or have we now uncovered more? There is a debate <laughs> about whether or not turnout was the culprit, um, and partly because if you look at the share of the vote that Trump got, he vastly overperformed Romney among white blue-collar voters. Clinton overperformed Romney with white college-educated women. So turnout could be part of the problem, but it's also the margin. So, so turnout and margin both matter for electoral outcomes. So how you disentangle the two is really, is really challenging. Mm. Um, one thing that's... So, so, I mean... We have an hour, so let's disentangle it now. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. From, from, so from my perspective and where I sat, what I saw was, because I was polling in a bunch of those states, not for the presidential campaign, but for other campaigns, was there was a, there was a lot more Republican energy than Democratic energy. When you ask people, you know, how interested are you in the election, which kind of correlates with turning out to vote, Republicans more interested, consistently more interested in, in, than Democrats. Um, and I think in some ways that's not completely surprising because we'd had eight years of Obama, and whenever you've had sort of two terms of a Democrat, it's really hard for a Democrat 
to be elected to, in essence, a third a third term. I mean, mm. Clinton, in some ways, was the de facto incumbent. And just looking at the U.S. political history, the odds would be against anybody running for that third, you know, Democratic term. And, you know, under the eight years of the Obama administration and the, and the Obama campaign, you know, there were some things that were done that um, they did not invest in Democratic infrastructure. Um, they left the Democratic Party in debt after the 2012 election to the tune of $24 million. Um, they set up separate OFA offices um, and not state party and didn't coordinate with state parties. So you have kind of a tired Democratic electorate, a lack of investment in Democratic infrastructure, at the same time an unprecedented assault on the labor movement and um, places where labor membership declined significantly because Republicans did things like eliminated collective bargaining rights for public employees. And so um, you just have a very tired Democratic electorate. Um, so, you know, just that, again, that's independent of the Trump campaign and mm. the Clinton campaign, right? So in some ways, it's not a surprise that you see more Republican energy to get a Republican, you know, in office and kind of disaffection and weakness among, among Democrats. And so I definitely felt that throughout the campaign. Then you layer on top of that, um, you know, the Clinton campaign did not invest significantly in states like Wisconsin, for example, um, they invested more than people than is, has been reported in places like Michigan um, and Pennsylvania, but they still didn't really run, from my understanding, I wasn't on the Clinton campaign, the kind of field effort and mobilization effort in some of those states, they, you know, according to what I've read, they didn't really know how much trouble they were in, uh, especially in Michigan and, and Wisconsin. And so, you know, if you're not out there, you know this because you do field, if you're not out there persuading your voters to go out to vote, um, at a time when there's pretty significant Democratic disaffection, you're going to get lower turnout. And so you can see in Philadelphia, in Milwaukee, in those cities, you know, um, a real decline in turnout, especially African-American turnout. And by the way, I am not suggesting that African-Americans are to blame for Trump being president. Uh, his, his victory was overdetermined, um, but certainly that was a part of some of her losses in some of the states. And so... Um, yeah, I think that turnout was part of it. But like I said, there's also this issue of margin. And I, I don't know. I, my guess is that Trump did better with white blue collar than almost any Republican in history because, you know, there was a, a time when there was a stronger labor movement in the U.S. And so you'd have white blue collar voters who were labor union members or households who would be more Democratic. Um, so, you know, Trump getting 70 percent of white blue collar men is an astonishing result. And that can flip a state as well as a turnout pattern. Mm. You know what I mean? And so it's just hard to disentangle the two. It's hard. I think both things can be true at the same time. Drop in Democratic turnout and enthusiasm, rise in Republican turnout, but an increase in a, of a margin of that magnitude. A lot of people thought that Clinton would do, do well with college-educated men. Um, she actually did win col white college-educated women, which uh, Romney had won. So she actually overperformed Obama with white college women. But, but white college-educated men voted Republican, in the end, and I think that's where your partisan instincts kind of kicked in mm. and probably overcame some of the um, ambivalence of college-educated men around, around Trump. So, again, turnout and margin. Um, and, and, and Clinton didn't rack up the margins, you know, among millennial voters um, that Trump was able to rack up with white-blue collar. She just couldn't overcome his margins. Do you... Um, there's a, a bit of a debate about... Um... I guess, the, the message that inspires those to go to the polls. Um, and 
Um, it's been, uh, I guess my question for you is, it, are the Democrats and Liberals focus, focusing too much on issues that are linked with identity politics and not enough on kitchen table issues like job security, wages, um, quality of education, affordable health care? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really good question, and that's certainly one of the critiques um, that has been um, made um, uh, including by my father, <laughs> in the pages of the American Prospect. They have a whole issue from about a month ago about kind of white working class and working class voters in the, in the U.S. Um, you know, I think that it's less a failure of policy because there isn't any question when it comes to policy um, that Democrats are heavily focused on um, on, the, on, you know, people who are struggling, you know, economically. Um, and, it, and it's more about message, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that there was a perception that, um, in part, was, I think, Obama's fault, that Democrats didn't really understand what people were going through. And so, you know, look, Obama inherited, you know, the worst recession since the Depression. And um, he was able to pull the country back from the brink, but he was not able to, and this is not, you know, all his fault. First of all, there are some limitations on what politicians can do to affect the economy in general. And also, I think because of the kind of compromises that were made in Congress, the stimulus plan and other investments to the kind of priming the pump, the kind of Keynesian, let's get the economy going, was probably not adequate. They probably should have done more, but there was just no way to get that through the, the Congress um, as it was constituted at the time. Um, so that, you know, even though the U.S. is out of the recession, unemployment's, you know, at a record low, wages are stagnant. That's true here in Australia, too. And, but I think that Obama, as many presidents do, it's not just him, um, you know, wanted to talk about, a lot about the progress they'd made. So if your president is out talking about progress and you're feeling like, I can't afford my housing, my transportation, my education, my health care, um, it feels like they're out of touch. And I think that um, if you look at the end of the Clinton campaign, when she and President Obama were campaigning together, the, the final few weeks of that campaign was focused on continuing the progress that we've made. And I think, you know, that I think led to an impression that there wasn't a real understanding of, of what's happening in people's daily lives. And that affects, by the way, not just these conservative white blue collar people, but also you know, low-income minorities, right, um, who had a Democratic president for eight years and don't feel like they're doing any better. And so that kind of depletes enthusiasm. So, again, it, I don't think it's an issue of policy. Um, there isn't any question, and I'm on a labor podcast, so I can be as partisan as I want to be. I don't think there's any question that if you look at what Democrats are for and Republicans are for, Democrats care about working people and Republicans don't. But um, I think that um, voters in the U.S. think neither party cares about them, that they're both complicit, they're both captured by Wall Street, that they don't understand the problems of regular people. And I think to some degree, Obama's economic message contributed to that sense that um, Democrats don't understand people's daily concerns. It's actually a similar feeling to the um, final days of the Paul Keating Labor government in the um, mid-1990s, actually. Um, we had come out of a recession, and you know, Keating... To be fair, Labor had been in government for a very long time, but Keating um, was the then Prime Minister, and we got out of the recession, and so I think he felt like he, had, he and his government had made a great achievement in getting Australia back on, a, on, on, on strong economic, stronger economic terms. Um, and he was talking about uh, you know, Australia becoming a republic and Mabo, uh, so an Indigenous rights, and uh, engagement with Asia, whereas uh, a lot of the voting public were just about... You know, we, we're not feeling that right now. We're still very much, you know, um, struggling. 
uh, and John Howard, the Conservative um, Prime Minister, uh, Opposition Leader, talked about se- you know seven minutes of sunshine that you got that we're not out of it yet, and saw him as someone that they could go with. And just you talking about Obama there, it's, it's mm-hmm. a point that I'd never actually considered uh, before. Um, for Republicans electing Trump, uh, I got a sense was more about trying to get if I mean if they weren't con- if they weren't convinced with by Trump. I think they were casting their ballot paper just to ensure that they could get a, uh, a conservative on the Supreme Court mm. bench, um, which was a hugely contentious issue um, leading up to that election. From, from your research, um, what issues or issues do, do you see crosses sections of the progressive community that in the next round of elections can motivate and drive people to the polls? Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Um, I don't know if you've been following what's happening in the U.S. right now, um, but as you know, the Republicans have spent spent most of the Obama years trying to uh, passing uh, empty, a sort of empty repeal of Obamacare or the America, uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, um, and you know Trump ran on repealing Obamacare, and you know there are problems with Obamacare, significant. Problems, and I, we don't need to get into healthcare policy here per se. But there's no question that Obamacare expanded the number of people covered. About 24 million more people have health insurance, but it didn't do much to control costs, and including people who have employer-based health insurance. So if you have employer-based health insurance, and your costs go up, and Obamacare is passed, it seems like it's Obamacare's fault, mm-hmm. right? And then premiums also went up right a month before the election, and so there, I think, was a hope. Uh, among many voters who voted for Trump, that they were going to repeal Obamacare and they were going to bring down health care costs. What, uh, and <laughs> um, I don't think uh, many Democrats really thought Republicans were going to repeal Obamacare and bring down the costs of health care. Um, but what a lot of Democrats w- said uh, over the course of the Obama years, and you know, I, I had campaigns that said it as well, is we just need to fix it. We need to, there's things we need to fix about Obamacare, and I think missed that there were a lot of people who had insurance, but because of the high cost of deductibles and out-of-pocket and co-pays, really de facto didn't have insurance. They had insurance they couldn't, couldn't use. And so when Democrats talked about fixing it, it sounds like, oh, it just needs a little tweaking here, a little tweaking there, as opposed to like, well, no, I've still got out-of-control costs I can't afford. I still have, there's still, you know, bankruptcies because of healthcare costs. Now, the Republicans, um, for some mysterious reason, did not actually have an alternative plan to repeal Obamacare. Mm. Um, and as you can see, what's happening now is that the plan that passed the House and what they're tr- currently trying to pass in the Senate, and they were supposed to vote on it yesterday or Wednesday in the U.S., <laughs> um, but they um, are postponing it to after the July 4th congressional resource c- recess because they can't get the votes. And what's happening is very interesting. I mean, first of all, the public hates it, 17% approve on the health care bill, on the Republican bill, which is terrible. But also there's lots of Republican governors who in these states who took the med, Obamacare gave more Medicaid money to states and Medicaid covers poor people. It also does other things as well. But so that's the biggest source of the expansion of coverage. So you have some very conservative states like Kentucky, where one in three people are covered through Medicaid. And so you have Republican governors of, New, of, of Nevada and of Massachusetts and other places who do not want <laughs> to lose that money. Mm. And they are going to be the ones who are blamed when a bunch of people lose their insurance. So Republicans have created a mess on health care. They have destabilized the, um, the health care market through things they can do in, on the regulatory side. 
and they have this very unpopular bill that most people believe is not going to help them. And um, I, if you look at the town hall meetings that are happening in congressional um, seats and in and for senators and states, it's healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. So I believe that I know there's a lot of stuff happening on Russia, <laughs> special prosecutor. What's going to matter to people is what's happening in their daily lives. And if you look at this Republican bill, it is unbelievable what it does to people in terms of increasing costs and cutting people off of insurance. And I think that is going to be their, their albatross in 2018, and it will cut across low-income people, of no matter what, where they live, no matter what race or ethnicity they are. Um, and it's going to be a shock, I think, to many people who voted for Trump. Is it an issue as well that will... that? because it's obviously the midterms coming up in 2018, is it an issue that uh, will give some um, success for the Democrats in those down-ballot races, not just Congress or the Senate, but state race, state house races as well? Um, I certainly hope so. <laughs> and, it, and I think we still, you know, there's early signs that it looks like there's Democratic energy. So we've had, um, I believe, five special elections uh, since Trump, uh, in congressional elections, since Trump was elected, in some cases he appointed a congressman to be a cabinet secretary, so they had to have an election to fill, you know, the spot. Um, and d- Democrats have lost them all because they're in Republican districts. But on average, Democrats have outperformed their previous performance by seven points. So they've lost them, and Democrats are wringing their hands and you know, circular firing squad and beating each other up, attacking Nancy Pelosi. But in, in fact, overall, it's pretty bad news for Republicans. Um, and so there's some early indication of Democratic energy. Because our country is so polarized by party, um, peop, there's been a decrease in split ticket voting. So it used to be that you know people would vote for a Democrat for Senate and a Republican locally, or actually the reverse in the South, people would vote for Democrats um, you know, for state office and vote Republican for federal. And ticket splitting has dramatically declined, and people are voting straight Republicans, straight Democrats. So if there's more enthusiasm for Democrats coming out to vote, it should help everyone up and down the ballot. Now, that being said, you still have to really make sure people vote all the way down the ballot. There's ballot roll-off. People vote, say, for president and Senate, and then don't vote the rest of the ticket. So there's always a gap in vote share, um, I mean, in numbers of vote casts. So there's a lot of work to do um, down the ballot, but it should help um, all the way up and down the ballot. Heading into the elections that are, um, we'll have some elections, um, gubernatorial ones later this year, then obviously the midterms next year. Do we have any evidence that suggests that the Democrats have learned any lessons from 2016? And can well, you point them out? I mean, I, I don't know what the lesson was from 2016. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I mean, you have to have a message. I think Clinton had one, tried to, um, I mean, she certainly had lots of policy papers. She didn't lack for an economic message. Um, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily one that connected with people. But on the other hand, you know, you look at the amount of free press and media that Trump got. She had, you know, and I think there's some pretty compelling evidence. The coverage of her was pretty unfair. So I think that the overall message is Democrats need to have an economic message that speaks to people's Concerns in daily life have to be connected with people, have to listen, have to really, really understand. I do think there's some, a little bit of truth to the notion of Democrats being somewhat out of touch. Um, You know, the truth is most Democratic votes come out of cities. Um, So there is a a rural-urban divide that's real. And I do think in in many ways a lack of understanding 
of you know rural life, for example, because um, the Democratic Party is so driven by urban you know urban votes. But um, I don't think that. Um, but but I don't but I don't think that's controversial, right? So I actually don't really understand why everyone's saying Democrats are losers and failed everything because <laughs> the campaigns I'm working on, I think we have a fairly good understanding that we need to talk, connect with people, and and, and understand and care, and you know have a set of policies that are going to help people and run effective campaigns to disseminate those ideas. So. Um, you know, I don't want to overlearn from 16, which is sort of seems like what's happening now mm. is that, you know, you know, the, the, the Maureen Dowd when the New York Times, you know, Democrats are a bunch of losers. I mean, <laughs> right. Mm. Um, the other thing I'd say is right now the job of Democrats is to be in opposition. Right. Um, and is to fight like hell against what they're going to do on health care um, is to make sure that Russia gets investigated. That is the Democrats job right now is to be an opposition party. And there's no unlike. Um, party systems like in Australia, where you have a party leader who's kind of the spokesperson. We don't have that. We have Nancy Pelosi in the House. We have Chuck Schumer in the Senate. We have Tom Perez at the DNC. But it's not, it's not, it's not one organization. And it's not centrally controlled. So when you're out of power, when you're not the president, you don't really have a single voice. You have lots of campaigns being run by lots of people. That's true on the Republican side. Too, by the way, it's just that you know it's been a while since um, you know. I mean, Republicans didn't have. I mean, look at the Republican primary in 2016. There was no sense of where that party was going and and what they were about. They so, had two debates because they couldn't fit them all on the stage. Right, exactly. Yeah, the, the 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 A team and the B team debates. So you know, I sort of think Democrats are doing what they're supposed to do right now. There's enthusiasm on the Democratic base. Um, you know, we need to be you know much more. Oh, here, here's what I would say as a criticism of the Democratic Party. We have to be about campaign finance reform and money in politics. And we are, you know, there are many of us in our party who are as bad on this issue as Republicans in terms of, you know, um, donations from Wall Street and, uh, you know, just kind of, the, you know, nobody went to jail after the economic crash. Democrats didn't send anyone to jail. The, um, the uh, Wall Street reforms did not touch bonuses, Right. You know, we bailed out, you know, banks. Right. And so I think that Democrats are complicit in kind of this politician kind of Wall Street relationship. And I think that people get that kind of the rules of the economy are kind of rigged against regular people. And I think Democrats have have been part of the problem on this as well. And until Democrats can kind of break that kind of unholy alliance, this is the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party I'm talking about now, her critique. And Sanders, to some degree, as well. I think that's really the piece. It's not. It's not so much that Democrats don't know they have to talk about the economy. It's that there's a real relationship there that has to be broken. And I think that's probably what holds Democrats back more than they don't know what they're doing or they're losers. You know? Do they? It's an interesting point you made there because yes, you're right. In Australia, under a parliamentary system, we do have a leader that represents our opposition if we're not in, in government. Is there a lack of cohesion amongst progressives? I mean, you have Bernie Sanders running around there. You have Elizabeth Warren doing great work. As you said, you mentioned you know, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, OFA are still hanging around. Mm-hmm. There's um, you know, obviously the labor unions. Um, there's so many different voices that are all out there. How do you... And this is going to be a challenge in Australia eventually as well. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can see it. But how, how do you... Is there a need to unite around a common person early in the piece? Um, I've heard some criticisms coming out of the United States saying, why do we wait for our primary season to all of a sudden, you know, uh, um, 
12 months out to decide who our leader is going to be. Why don't we do that now? So mm-hmm. we can then give that person as much support as we possibly can to get them in a winning position when it comes to the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I would say that the policy differences uh, and ideological, ideological differences are way overstated. Um, they were overstated in the Democratic primary. I mean, certainly Bernie Sanders was calling for free college education for everybody, and Hillary Clinton was calling for something much more modest around college affordability. But, you know, on most issues, they basically are in the same place. Um, and the, the difference was more about perception and behavior than policy. So, for example, Hillary Clinton giving speeches um, at Goldman Sachs for, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. Um, so... The, I've done heaps of them. It's no oh, yeah, deal. yeah, yeah. So I'm not saying that wasn't a real difference between them, but what I'm saying in terms of policy and ideology and the democratic platform, there's almost no difference between the two of them. And there's probably almost no difference between, you know, Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren, right? So, so a lot of this stuff gets overstated in the kind of in, internal battles, right? But there are very few ideological differences. I mean, that's part of the the challenge in some ways, but also the opportunity is that there's a lot more ideological dissension within the Republican Party than there is within the Democratic Party. So the issue is more um, this idea of a kind of who's going to emerge as the next leader. And I just think in in the political system we have, I don't see how, who are the people who are going to settle on that leader? Who are are those people, right? You You can really only imagine someone who's very, very rich having the resources because it would take money to emerge as kind of the next leader. Um, you know, there are certain people who have platforms within the party that's not something you can buy, like, you know, again, like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. But if someone were to, like, emerge to sort of be the leader, they would have to have um, quite a bit of money. And, and I also think quite a bit of grassroots support, you know. So I just don't know what the mechanism is for finding that person and making that happen. I just, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got a question about... Uh, voter suppression um, and redistricting. What evidence, if you have any, or from your own research, has suggested that that structurally is a problem? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's a problem for your democracy. Yes. But is it having an impact um, on the ability for the Democrats to turn out voters, mm-hmm. particularly in states like North Carolina? And um, so, I think that there is mixed evidence on it. Um, There's no question that individual states, because each state regulates its own election rules, and individual states, particularly those that have total Republican control, have instituted a whole set of different um, measures that are all perfectly legal, though not always deemed constitutional, but certainly legal around not just instituting requirement of an ID card to vote, but you know, restricting the hours that polling places are opened, reducing the number of polling places, reducing the period of time when people can vote early, um, reducing the excuses you can use for having a mail-in ballot, right? So there's all all these kinds of things you can do um, to try to reduce the number of people who can vote, and that obviously disproportionately affects lower income, people of color, the elderly, very, very old people, right? And that's, so that's happened across a whole range of states. And that's part of a very deliberate Republican and corporate-driven agenda. There's an organization called ALEC, 
um, I think I can't remember what it actually stands for, but it's an association of corporations, though more and more of them are dropping out as their work becomes more public, that creates model pieces of legislation that then their members who are state legislators, almost entirely Republicans, um, entirely Republicans, then introduce. So there'll be model legislation that's the same introduced in state after state after state. And, and some of that, there's lots of different pieces of it. There's anti-union stuff. Um, there's, you know, pro-gun stuff, but there's, you know, voter suppression stuff. So, um, you know, it's the evidence, like the data, like the jury's out. Like, I don't really know um, because sometimes these places, these, these um, efforts happen in places that are not competitive politically. So even if it does reduce it, it has no impact on the actual, you know, outcome. And in some places, the, um, the election's overcome by events and there's such a sweeping victory that if there was some suppression, it wouldn't have mattered that much. It so must. it's really hard. So I'm sh- so my point is, I am sure that we have reduced the number of people who can vote. But a lot of it, again, happens in places that are not politically competitive, so it's kind of invisible, or, you know, events kind of overtake. Um, and uh, But, you know, the black turnout did decline. And a lot of this stuff happened um, where black people vote. And it's hard to dismiss the notion that um, some of that, ha- you know, some of it was that Obama wasn't on the ticket, but some of it's probably from, from that. There's even, there's less evidence, by the way, that like campaign crime suppression does anything. You know, like on the day of the election, you know, telling people you're in the wrong polling place or something like that, right? The, that kind of day of stuff, um, which always, you always have these kind of apocryphal stories about it. I think it's the systematic stuff done in legislation that's really insidious that has the biggest impact. And it speaks to the importance of Democrats to win back state houses so they can... Yes. Well, on on two levels, um, to try to deal with those laws. So some of them, I mean, a lot of courts are finding them unconstitutional. So, I mean, certainly when it comes to district lines, um, the Republicans are not on a good run in terms of court decisions about um, district lines. But, um, yes, in 2020, there'll be a new census. Every 10 years, the census is conducted. um, And when that's conducted, um, you have to reapportion congressional seats because of population shifts throughout the country. Some states pick up seats, some lose seats. I know you have the same reapportionment process, but yours is done by a nonpartisan commission. But in most states, it's done by the people in power. And not surprisingly, the people in power draw the lines to um, preserve their majorities in state legislatures and congressionally. And so there's a bunch of states that have open gubernatorial seats that have had eight years of Republicans like Ohio, um, like um, Michigan, and I think that a lot of Democrats think there's an opportunity to win back some of those state houses, maybe win back some majorities, at least in one chamber, so that when that redistricting process happens after the 2020 election, that the lines will be drawn more fairly. But the other thing that's happened, um, and it happened while I was here in Australia, is that the Supreme Court is going to hear a partisan redistricting case. This, the Supreme Court has, already, has always said you can't um, draw lines on the basis of race, right, to discriminate against you know, African-Americans for dilute the African-American vote, that's unconstitutional. And there are states like Texas, Florida, and and North Carolina who've already had their lines thrown out because they were clearly drawn uh, in a way that was racially discriminatory. Supreme Court has not heard a case on partisan redistricting. In other words, Republicans or Democrats drawing lines to favor to, to favor their side or the other. So there's a case that was in Wisconsin that is now going to be heard by the Supreme Court the expert witness is your own Simon Jackman, professor at University of Sydney. He is the expert on this. He's the expert witness on this case. Um, and they've developed kind of a methodology for measuring diluting votes. So the idea is that a Democratic vote counts less than a Republican vote because of the way the lines are drawn. 
and that potentially could be found unconstitutional. It will take at least a year, probably. They'll hear the case, they'll hear the case this fall, they'll rule out in the spring. You know, who knows if this decision will come down in time for whatever happens. It certainly probably will not affect 2018, but it could very well, depending on what they decide, affect 2020, independent of Democrats picking up state houses or state legislatures. So it's a really, really interesting time to look at this redistricting issue. Particularly since the rumors that Justice Kennedy is thinking about mm-hmm. pulling the pin, which would not help. No. At all. No. He's, everything's about Kennedy, always. Yeah. <laughs> um, w- w- want to ask a question about uh, gun violence and gun reform, which is, is a topic that I think a lot of Australians and a lot of our listeners would, would do find fascinating, mm. just because culturally this is something that I think our two nations are so different on. Um, but... You know, every time there is a tragic event in the United States, and it happens all too often, um, we all, as Australians, think, oh, surely now something is going to change. Because we had our moment. We had, you know, Port Arthur, which was an awful moment in our history. And it took, amazingly, it was a conservative prime minister that said, okay, enough's enough. We need to introduce laws that is going to protect our citizens against gun violence. Um, What do you think, uh, at what point do Americans say to their to the legislators, enough is enough. Whether you're red or blue, I'm not going to vote for you mm-hmm. if you are not going to pursue genuine, meaningful gun reform in our country. Sure. Um, it's a huge issue. And um, interestingly enough, I was... Um, so I um, worked for Gabby Giffords, and I still work for her organization um, that is working to try to introduce you know, common-sense laws to reduce gun violence. Um, and my daughter, um, was, she was shot in 2011. And so my daughter was four years old. And so she remembers cause she was in the car with me when I heard on the radio that Gabby had been shot. And I mean, I did, I did all of Gabby's races and, um, she still remembers it today. And so every time there's a shooting, they, they're kind of aware of it. So when we came here, I can't remember why it came up, but I said, well, you know that they've banned because, you know, handguns and assault, you know, I assume you have right hunting rifles and stuff, but they've banned them here. And my son was like, why can't they do that in the U.S.? I was like, good question. <laughs> they're like, they're completely bewildered about why you wouldn't just get rid of guns. Um, look, I think you have to look at this in a, a larger historical context. In 1994, um, Clinton um, passed a, a crime bill that, among other things, banned assault weapons. Um, and there... And that was sort of the beginning of a pushback from the NRA and the gun lobby on restrictions on guns that culminated uh, in, if you look at the 2000 presidential election and you look at like West Virginia, which Al Gore lost, there was a huge, it was a huge push by the NRA on guns in, um, in West Virginia, but also targeting like blue collar Democrats on, on guns. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, really until Sandy Hook, um, Democrats have been a little scared to talk about guns. So there's been a valiant, you know, the Brady campaign to end gun violence. There's been some valiant efforts. There's, you know, advocacy groups working on trying to restrict access to guns. But in terms of the national conversation, it was silent. And Democrats really ran away from it. There was a sense that the assault weapon ban and then the presidential election said Democrats should never talk about guns because we'll be taken out by the, literally taken out by the NRA. And it's post Sandy Hook, um, which I'm sure everybody knows about, um, you, you saw more courage from Democratic politicians and um, a revitalization. Um, again, there were some groups doing work, but really a revitalization increase in focus on the left, among progressives, on guns. And it's going to take a while to change the conversation. You know, where the public is now is a majority thinks 
majority of people think having a gun makes you safer, which, by the way, is not true. The research suggests very clearly that if you have a gun in your house and an intruder comes in, you're more likely to get killed if you don't, than if you don't have a gun, probably because you don't really know how to use it or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, certainly, you know, gun in the house, kids, accidents. I mean, it's all kinds of domestic violence, I mean, obviously. So, um, so we have to, like, re-educate people about guns. And right now, there is a sense that guns keep you safe. Um, every time there's a terrorist attack, people go out and buy guns. Um, and so you have this sense that people need to have their guns. Not everybody thinks that, but a majority actually believe having a gun will make you, make you safer. At the same time, um, you know, you have a Supreme Court who, uh, in the Heller decision, said people have a constitutional right to own a gun. Um, and so uh, the, rel- the well-regulated militia got interpreted as an individual right. So, you know, those two are really, and, and, and the, the, the NRA and the gun lobby has done a masterful job of kind of painting having a gun as almost a patriotic act, mm. right? And so we have a lot of work to do to change the narrative before we can even change laws. And certainly um, it has become, it is another partisan issue so that as long as Republicans control Congress, there will be no movement on any kind of gun control legislation. So um, I don't have a good answer for you. I think we are making some progress. The fact that we're having the conversation and we're passing individual pieces of legislation in individual states. Um, I did work on two campaigns in Washington State that instituted universal background checks and also last year, one that allows you to take out an emergency protection order so that um, if someone is, you know, mentally ill and you think they're a danger to themselves or others, or if you are a victim of domestic violence and someone has a protection order against them, you can prevent them from buying a gun. Right now you can't mm-hmm. if they've not been convict- convicted of a crime. So there's stuff happening at the state level. But this is going to take time to kind of change the conversation that for, you know, seven, you know, for 15 years, you know, was one of silence on the progressive side, relative silence, and really the NRA grooming candidates, spending lots of money in elections, scaring Democrats, saying, you know, we, you know, we, can, we can take people out of, uh, of office if they are wrong on the gun issue. Mm. Changing the conversation slightly, to, but maintaining the, the, the uh, discussion around statistics, your uh, New York Yankees... <laughs> yes. <laughs> After a surprisingly good start to the season, yes. I was reading on um, five thirty-two that they are now a thirty-two percent chance of winning the AL mm, East. Yes. Um, and you're now two games back from my beloved Boston Red Sox. Why are you a Boston fan? Um, this must this must be humbling days mm. and watching the fall of the evil empire. Mm, no, no. Um, you know, I take the long view, and if you look at the storied history of the New York Yankees. Um, you know, there's always peaks and troughs and, you know, we had a great team for many, many, many years, you know, led by our captain, Derek Jeter. And, um, you know, we're in a rebuilding moment. We've got some individual players who are excellent. Um, and, uh, you know, I take the long view. Mm -hmm. I do. And by the way, I live in Washington, D.C., so I get to have one national team and one American team. And so I have the Nats as my national team. So I do get to have, you know, I get to root for both for both sides, at least until the Yankees and the Nationals play each other in the World Series. Uh-huh. And then I'll be a Yankee fan. And do you think your Yankees are going to make a World Series before the end of the decade? <laughs> I, I, Polster should never make predictions. <laughs> Fair enough. Look, um, we uh, a couple more things to do before we wrap up. We've got a lightning round of questions, seven very quick questions where you can just quickly rattle off some okay. answers. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. First album you ever purchased? The Who. Uh, who's next? Uh, who will be the first uh, woman president of the United States? 
My daughter, Sadie. Good answer. Uh, what's the lowest moment you've ever had as a Yankees fan? <laughs> was it 2004? Derek Jeter retiring. Oh, that was lower than just completely choking and not continuing another 80, 86 years of, you know, when we reversed the curse. Okay. Uh, blue cheese or ranch with your wings? Blue cheese. Weirdest moment you've ever had on a campaign? Too many to count. I have to think about it. Okay. Come uh, back to that question and I'll give you a lightning uh, answer. Greatest uh, TV series to um, binge watch of all time. Wow. I'm, I'm old school. Uh, I love Hill Street Blues. Great theme song too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iconic. Absolutely. Uh, American coffee or Melbourne coffee? American coffee, no oh question about it. God. What are you? I'm struggling with a long black. Really? And adding milk to it to have it be like American coffee, yeah. Okay. You could literally just go to the Yarra and just take that water and mm-hmm. heat it up, and that would mm-hmm. be like American mm-hmm. coffee. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I make very, very strong drip coffee, and I drink about a half a pot of it before I go to work in the morning, and so I'm very deprived of coffee in this town. But if you had an Australian coffee into the equivalent, you'd be flying. You <laughs> have half a pot of Australian coffee. I think we need to walk up the Ligon Street after this episode mm-hmm. and just take her up to one of the coffee shops on mm-hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. Our um, producer Conrad is furious here. Um, if you were 18 again and had time to spare, what race would you go and campaign on for the 2018 midterms? Elizabeth Warren. Is she up again? Oh no, sorry. You're talking about, I was thinking presidential. Okay. Midterms. If I was 18 so ne- again, who so would next I go year, who would Okay, you- let me think about this for a sec. Because you, you can't miss the question because I have people running. Mm-hmm. So if I don't say one of my own candidates, uh-huh. you well, know what I mean? Like, I, and I have like f- four governor's races and four congressional races right now, so I, I'll get in trouble. Well, just, just, you know, just randomly pick one that you think that would be fun to go on to. One for young Labor people. Not that we're encouraging them to go because we have a 2018 state election to ca- campaign on and we do not want them in America at that point in time. Okay. I think you should go work for Michelle Lujan Grisham. She's running for governor of New Mexico. And that state um, has surpassed, you know, Mississippi on um, being like one of the worst states economically, education, et cetera, to be in. And so she's an amazing, exciting candidate. And there's a huge amount of work to do there. Right. Very good. There you go. There's a tip for any Aussies that happen to be traveling around the States next year. Uh, Anna, before we wrap up, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? You've got a podcast. Maybe it's a good opportunity for you to give that a bit of a boost. Well, I'm slightly embarrassed by my podcast, so I don't, because it's the production value is so poor. I'm looking at your mixing equipment here and the multiple mics. I have a, I have a laptop and a mic I plug into my laptop. Um, so, I, yes, I have a podcast. It's called That's What She Said. I did not come up with the name. Um, and I did not. A friend of mine did. And um, the idea is to um, have a woman in politics, meaning me and hopefully some guest hosts down the line, uh, uh, elevate and talk about the work of women in politics, especially kind of behind the scenes. So obviously there's lots of great women elected officials, but there's also great women who do television ads and opposition research and direct mail and community organizing. And so I've had some real... uh, legends on the podcast so far, but I've also had just people who are kind of doing the day-to-day work of recruiting women to run for politics or covering women on the campaign trail. And I've been on a bit of a hiatus uh, here in Australia, but I plan to start up again when I return to Washington. Fantastic. So it's on iTunes, available. And SoundCloud. And And at some point I'll be sophisticated enough uh, to figure out how to get onto other platforms as well. Very good. 
Uh, thank you very much mm-hmm. for coming on the show today. We greatly appreciate the time mm-hmm. that uh, you've dedicated to talking to us. Um, just remember to all of our listeners uh, that you can download uh, the Pot on the Hill via um, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Don't forget to share it with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. For all the latest Labor news, be sure to follow Victorian Labor on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Next week's guest is the Federal Labor Shadow Treasurer, Chris Bowen. So if you have any questions for Chris, please email us at podcast at vic.lp.org.au. So Anna, before you go, your last task is to come up with a song to send us off with. What is the song that you have chosen and why? A little help from my friends, the Beatles, because the Beatles are my all-time favorite band. But it's not that. It's that I have finally gotten both of my children obsessed with the Beatles, and they love that song. Well, you got three votes for me as well. Safe trip home to the United States. Thank, Thank you, you very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. And we'll talk to you in the future. Sounds good. Thanks. Would you think if I sang out a tune, would you stand up and